0: We are um, beginning our new series, uh, which is called Freedom from Religion. I I know that that might feel a little odd to some of you for for you to be at church on Easter and we're going to start talking about freedom from religion, but but I promise it'll make sense as we get going. Uh, But before we go too far, I want to just... Um, I want to make a couple of blanket statements that will help us as we try to navigate through this all together. So, First things first, um, I want you to know where we stand on this thing here. If this is your regular church home, you know this well, and so this will just be a reminder. If you're visiting with us, you ought to know this up front. This is the Bible, and we believe this to be the inspired Word of God, meaning that we believe it is authentic, it is accurate, and therefore, it is authoritative for life and instruction. This tells us how to live a life that honors God. And so therefore, when we preach, we start with a common understanding that if this tells us something... That it is absolutely unequivocally accurate. That means that there are times I have to tell you things that I wish were not true. I mean, there are times that there are things in this Bible, things that God tells us. There are times that there are things that I just wish were not in there. And I wish I could gloss over them. And I wish I could act as if they weren't real. But the simple reality is that if God has put it in here, it's good for our instruction and life, and it's necessary. And so we start with a common understanding that this is real, okay? Which means that I'm not going to do for you or to you, however you want to view that, what we typically do to or for people on Easter Sunday, I'm not going to sit here and I'm not going to try to argue with you about why the resurrection is real. We're going to start with a common understanding that the resurrection is, in fact, real. If you have questions about that, if there's something about the resurrection that does not make sense to you, then there are books by the front door there. They're called The Case for Easter. I would encourage you to grab one of those, flip through it read the questions, the common objections that people have about the resurrection and the answers uh, from scholars and people that are frankly smarter than I am about why we can know for sure about the resurrection. But what I'll tell you is we're just going to start with the basic assumption that the resurrection is true and that the Bible can be trusted. And as we do that, it's going to bleed into everything we talk about here this morning. Okay? Now, who loves ice cream? I don't have any for you, so if that's what you were expecting, there's donuts, but, but I love ice cream. John Acuff tells a story. Some of you probably have heard this story before, but John Acuff tells a story um, about a kid um, who goes to, a, it's like a Chuck E. Cheese kind of place, right, you know, uh, where a kid can be a kid. Okay, and, and at this Chuck E. Cheese kind of place for a birthday, there's a kid maybe 10, 12 years old, and uh, at this particular Chuck E. Cheese type establishment, there is a Sunday bar. You know the Sunday bar, right? Where you get your bowl of ice cream, and then it's toppings galore, right? There's hot chocolate, there's hot caramel, there's strawberry sauce, there's marshmallow fluff, there's sprinkles, there's cookies, there's candies. It's like you ever go to City Light Yogurt, and they got all the stuff there? It's like that on steroids, right? It's everything you want. And so you've got this kid who's there at somebody else's birthday party, and and, and so there's nobody there to stop him and say, that's enough toppings. Okay? So he's got his bowl, and he steps up so excitedly um, to choose his first topping, the base topping. Everything else... I mean, listen, if you've ever made a sundae, you know this. Everything builds off the first choice, right? Because if you go hot fudge... well then you got to be careful what's your next choice. My kids have learned this the hard way at City Light Yogurt. They're like, oh, I want grape ice cream with Reese's Peanut Butter Cups on it. Right? No, 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 no. I mean, your first choice is critical. And so he looks, and he ponders, and he chooses. There's a problem, though. At this particular establishment... By the way, you know what the ice cream bar looks like, right? That's it. (laughs) At this particular establishment, there's also a hot dog bar. And they happen to be relatively close to one another. And so he takes his bowl of pristine white vanilla ice cream and he goes up very excitedly to the butterscotch dispenser and he puts his hand on the plunger and he smacks it down, not once, but twice. mustard. (laughs) I mean, the kid is devastated. I mean, this was his chance. Everything you could possibly want. Nobody to tell him to stop. And his base flavor is mustard. I mean, the look of shame and horror on the kid's face. He looks around, you know, he's like, oh, what do I do? Um, but it's okay because there's, there's an employee there who sees everything that happens and he swoops in and he goes to take the bowl and he says, it's okay, I got it. I'll bring you a fresh bowl. But the kid. No, that's all right. I'll eat it. And then he does this thing because this is going to make it better. No, that's all right, I'll eat it. And then he starts to stir it. (laughs) Because we all know that if you mix it in, that that makes it better. And he stirs, and he stirs, and he stirs, but no matter how hard he stirs, it doesn't change what he's got. And here's the thing about that, guys. Life is a little bit like that. I don't know about you, but I have put some disgusting stuff in my ice cream. And I've tried. I've tried to figure out a way to make it edible. right? I've stirred, and I've stirred, and I've stirred. And the problem is, this is where religion kicks in. This is where religion comes from. See, because in life, we put gross stuff in our ice cream, and we try as hard as we possibly can for a way to make it okay. And you know what? Somewhere along the line, somebody told us what would do it. Somewhere along the line, somebody said, you know what? You need to get to church. I mean, raise your hand if somebody has ever told you out of love or disgust, you need church. Really? That's it? Okay. I'm not buying it. I've met some of you. But that's what we were told. We were told this is what it's going to be. This is what's going to work. This is what's going to make it okay. Go to church and we get to church. And, and what do we hear when we're at church? We're, we got to try hard, right? You know, we got we to gotta stir harder. And so we're told and we do, we read our Bible, read your Bible. Fine. We'll read our Bible. You know what? You need to give when the offering plate goes by. So we give when the offering plate goes by. You know what? You need to be in the nursery. You need to do your turn. in the Fine, so we go to the nursery and we do our turn. And we pray the right prayers and we say the right things and we show up at the right times and we pour all of ourselves into it and it's exhausting and it's frustrating and it never delivers on what it promised it would deliver. If you're here this morning and you are exhausted with religion, if you are burned out with trying to check everything off of your list, listen to me, I get it. I get it. Because that's never what this was intended to be. If you've ever believed that if if God is going to accept you, you better do these things. You better say these prayers. You better show up at this time. You better give this much money. You better read this much scripture. You've been sold something that was false. And it will wear you out. And there's nothing about that compelling and there's nothing about that worth getting out of bed in the morning. Because it's religion. And religion isn't necessarily good for you. Now, I want you to understand something. When I say religion isn't necessarily good for you, I'm not breaking any pastor rules. I'm not the only pastor that knows this. I don't have some secret teaching for you. In fact, a good read through the gospels, and you'll find out that Jesus wasn't real keen on religious folks either. He wasn't a real big fan of religious folks. In fact, you might say that he despised them. I remember having a conversation with somebody one time. I was inviting them to church, and they're like, no, 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 I don't like religious people. And I'm like, that's cool, neither did Jesus. It didn't work, they still didn't come. But I thought it was an awesome statement. Because neither did Jesus. Jesus was not a fan of religious folks, because religious folks always missed the point, okay? And so this, we actually, today, today we're launching our series, Freedom From Religion. It's going to go on for seven weeks, and we're going to be walking through the book of Colossians to see what Jesus has to say about, or what God has to say, how he instructs his apostle Paul to write about freedom from religion and embracing something so much better, than religion. See, the problem is religion says do. Religion is what I do to get close to God. That's what religion is. Religion is a process. It's a set of standards. It's things that I do to get me close to God. And when I know I'm broken, listen, if you didn't know this today, I'm sorry, I'm going to disappoint you. You're broken. You're messed up. Sorry. I mean, you know that, right? Right. There's part of you that's jacked up. It is what it is, okay? Again, that's not me. That's that's the word of God that's telling us this, and so when I strive hard to get to God, it's for a good reason. I know I need God. I know I need something. I know my life doesn't work. I know it's not what it's supposed to be, and so I'm working to get to God, but it never seems to satisfy, and it it runs the course and it gets exhausting. Listen, if you're here and, and, and you're one of those folks too as an adult, or teenagers, you can listen to this over there. I'm sure there's something good on the phone, but over here, it's my son, so it's okay. We don't call out other people's kids at church, unless they sit with my son, Anil. Um, but here's the deal. Here's the deal. If you've walked away from church because when you hit 18, see a lot of us, we go to church. We go to church. We go to church. We go to church because we have to go to church. Parents go to church. They tell us we have to go to church. Okay. They don't want to go to church. Why are you shoving religion down my throat? Because it feels like that's what they're doing. They're shoving religion down your throat. They're not telling you, you have to believe anything, but they're telling you, you have to at least do everything that people that believe do. And then you get to be 18 and you leave and you walk away from the church. And and, and if you're here and, and that's your story, the reason that happens to us is because the way we always viewed this was we always viewed it as religion that's supposed to make me feel better. Prayers that were supposed to make me feel connected to God. Reading the Bible that was always supposed to make me feel like God accepted me or giving the right amount of money that was supposed to make me feel like God was happy with me. And it was always stuff we were doing to try to get there. The problem is, if you walked away feeling angry at the church, or exhausted with the church, or burned out with the church, or just flat tired of it, it's because you never understood that it was always about a relationship with Jesus. See, religion says there are things that you have to do to get to God. Jesus says that everything that needed to be done to get to God is already done. It's the words on the cross that says it is finished. It does not mean that you should add to it. It does not mean that you should stir harder. It simply means that it is done. Everything you need to come to a right relationship with God has been accomplished on your behalf by Jesus Christ on the cross. And so as we dig into this today, we're going to see how that works. And we'll see in the book of Colossians, that's what this is all about. So let's jump right in. We're going to look uh, at the first 10 verses of Colossians. Um, and so we'll start here at the beginning. We won't dwell here, but just so we know what we're reading. This letter is from Paul. Chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and from our brother Timothy. Now, in case some of you are really uncomfortable with Bible speak, I'm going to tell you what that means. It means that this letter is written by Paul and Timothy. That's it. It's not trying to convince you of anything else. It just says, hey, Paul, um, and by the way, Paul is, is an important character in the New Testament. Paul is um, he is the one that we read about in the book of Acts, that at the beginning, he was condemning Christians to die. People that claimed faith in Jesus Christ because Paul was a good Jew, so people that were claiming faith in Jesus Christ and claiming that Jesus Christ was real, Paul was actively working to condemn them to death. He wanted them to die because he felt like they were lying and they were profaning the God of the universe. But then something happened, and Paul had an encounter with God, and Paul's life changed completely. And in fact, we know by good uh, what the Bible teaches us is that eventually, good tradition tells us that eventually, Paul was beheaded, right? Get, get the irony of that. Paul used to hunt down Christians and, and, and try to condemn them to death, because they were Christians, Paul becomes a Christian himself, because God is that impressive, and he has this grand encounter with God, God chooses him for his mission, and then all of a sudden, at the end of his life, Paul is beheaded, because he claims Christ. For anybody who's not sure that Jesus is real, you're going to have to work hard to explain that. You're going to have to work hard to explain the complete life change of a guy that was working to condemn Christians, and then all of a sudden pours out his life, all of his comfort, all of his, all of his possessions, everything, he pours it all out for the sake of the gospel to the point where his head is literally cut off because he will not deny that Jesus is the Messiah. That's a big life change that you're going to have to try to explain away if you're going to tell me that Jesus isn't who he says he is. But here's what he says. So Paul and Timothy, and they're writing to God's holy people in the city of Colossus. That's why the book is called Colossians, because it's a letter letter written to the church in Colossus, the Colossian church. Okay, And we are writing to God's holy people who are faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. So this is a letter to Christians that live in that city says, may, may God our Father give you grace and peace. Okay, So we start off here, and this is what he says in, in, in verse 3. So we always pray for you, and we give thanks to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all God's people, which come from your confident hope of what God has reserved for you in heaven. You have this expectation ever since you first heard the truth of the good news. And so we're going to get into this here, and there's a couple things that I want you to know as we go. First things first, Paul's saying, look, we, he and Timothy, are always praying for you. We are always praying for you. Why? We're doing it ever since you became, this is, this is what he's saying here, ever since you became Christians, we've been praying for you to be strengthened." Ever since you became a Christian, which means, get this, you've heard this, uh, you've had this expectation since you first heard the truth of the good news. Ever since you heard the gospel, good news is gospel, ever since you heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, you have had this new hope. You've had this newfound love for people. You've had this faith in Christ Jesus, all because you heard the gospel and you responded to it. And I love this. Also, the hope of what God has reserved for you in heaven. Some of you, let's be blunt, some of you, your life is devoid of hope. That doesn't mean you're walking around terribly depressed. It's not what it means. But for some of you, your life never exists past tomorrow, potentially next week. Maybe every once in a while, I'm thinking about the vacation I get to take in the summer. For some of you, that's as far ahead as your life ever gets. That's as far as your hope extends. You know, your hope is all wrapped up and maybe there'll be a promotion in it for me someday. Maybe, maybe this time when it's time to buy a new car, I'll be able to get one with only two doors. Guys, you know what I'm talking about. You can admit it, it's okay. No, no, we love four-door cars. Families are great, I know. I know, but this is what we're doing. We, we tend to think like we, one station at a time. But Paul says, ever since you've heard the gospel, you have this hope that is rooted in what God has promised for you in heaven. This good news that's about something other than just the mundane, everyday details. I go to work, I punch a clock, I pay my bills. I think ahead to maybe some fun things I get to do and then I start it all over again. I know there's some of you at the end of the day, that's, that's where your heart is, right? You're like, oh, what a day. And tomorrow I get to do the whole thing over again, and it's exhausting. But Paul says, no, 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 you've got this great expectation. It's rooted in hope, and I want to tell you about hope. Hebrews 11.1 1 tells us about hope. You want to live a life that's passionate? You want to live a life that's worth getting out of bed in the morning? you want to live a life that means something, then you need to be intimately acquainted with the promise of Hebrews 11.1. It says, faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It's the evidence of things that we can't see. That's faith. That's hope. Raise your hand if you're a Cubs fan. No reason, I was just curious. How many of you, even in this first two weeks of the season, are smelling a repeat? Come on, be brave. Who's got the repeat? Just a few unfaithful people out there. The Cubs will repeat this year. Mark it down. Write it down somewhere. I hope. I hope. Some of you have heard this story about game seven of the World Series last year. When the Cubs were winning, and we were all very bold. And then the next thing you know, they're not winning anymore. And it's a tie game. And it's looking bad. Um, and it's in the ninth inning, and it's not positive. And I'm sitting there with my dad and my brother and Travis. Travis just about broke his hand in disgust because he slammed his head down. He was trying to hit his knee. He was so upset, hit it on the coffee table. Just about broke his head. My brother, I'm a big dude. He's got me by a hundred pounds, but my brother just falls flat on his face. Like this is no joke. Like he is laying face down on the ground, like wailing because he's been waiting for this for a long time. And my dad sitting in the corner, I knew it. I knew they wouldn't win. I knew they'd find a way to lose. It's Joe Madden's fault. But then they pull it out and they win an extra innings and every single one of those guys would say, yeah, we, we do it. <laughs> they didn't know it. What they, what they had was they had a hope. But it could have very easily gone the other way. And here's what you need to know. That is not this kind of hope. See, when when the author Hebrew Hebrews says, faith shows the reality of what we hope for, it's the evidence of things we do not see, that is not the word that I would use for hoping that the Cubs will win the World Series, hoping that they'll pull it out, hoping that they'll repeat, no, 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 that is blind hope, and some of you have been led to believe that faith is as blind as my hope that the Cubs will win again. See, some of you have grown up thinking this, or the church has been so disconnected to you, or you've got such negative experiences that you feel like having faith in things you can't see, in the promises of God, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that having that faith is the same thing as me having hope that the Cubs will win. But they're not the same, they're not the same word. Okay? It's a misunderstanding of what this author is talking about when he says faith is just the reality of what we hope for. That word for hope is a word that is rooted in the Greek that means certainly. That is certain hope. I hope for it because I know for a fact that it will happen. That's the kind of hope that we're talking about, and that's the kind of hope that makes life worth living. That's the kind of hope that frees you from going through religious motions and hoping that someday it will catch up. That's the kind of hope that frees you from doing these little tasks every day and just thinking that maybe, just maybe, God will eventually say it's okay now. But none of that is right. That's hope that's rooted in The fact that Jesus Christ is who he says he is, it's hope that's rooted in the gospel. And just in case you're not sure of the gospel, I'm not going to dwell here. We won't linger, but I want you to know. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Let me now remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news I preach to you. It is the good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. So here's what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, look, here's how it happened. The scriptures told us that this was going to happen. They told us that Christ would live. They told us that he would die. And guess what? He did. They told us that he would be raised from the dead on the third day. And guess what? He was. And some of you might be thinking, well, that's all fine and good. Prove it. Show your work. Well, here's what he says. Knowing that that will be their question, Paul says, well, here, after he was raised from the dead, and and by the way, nobody, listen, I'm not sure what you believe these days. I'm not sure what you think about the gospel, but any good historical research, there is nobody credible that is ever going to try to convince you anymore that Jesus Christ was not crucified on a cross. That is, whether you are a Christian whether you are an atheist, whether you are an agnostic, whether you're a Jew, whether you're whatever, there is nobody that will argue the crucifixion. There is enough historical record and historical fact for the crucifixion that nobody will argue it. What you argue, the argument isn't, did he die on a cross? The argument is, did he really live again? Okay, so that's where Paul pushes his defense. Okay, he says, right after this, he says, just as the scripture said, he was raised again on the third day. Then he was seen by people. First he was seen by Peter, then by the 12. He was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. You know why he says most of whom are still alive, so some have died? Because if you were in the church in Corinth and you didn't believe this, guess what you could do? You could go find the eyewitness accounts. You could go find the people that saw him after the resurrection, and you could ask them for yourself. He says some of them have died, but most of them are still alive and kicking, and so you go check it out if you want to. He says, and then finally, he was seen by James, later by all the apostles, uh, and James there is his brother. Uh, James is another one. You know, James hated the fact that Jesus said he was God. You know that, right? I mean, James absolutely hated the fact that Jesus said he was God. James tried to convince Jesus to shut up and come home with him at one point in time. You read through the Gospels, there's a point where James comes, Jesus is claiming, I am, I'm him, I'm the Messiah, and and James comes, and James is trying to convince, you know what, come home with me, right? Because James is also a good Jew, he knows what happens when people claim to be God. They get rocks thrown at them until they're dead. Okay? So James is trying to convince Jesus because there's no way you're God. I mean, think if your older brother tried to convince you he was God. Not having it. right? James wasn't having it. He's like, "You come with me, come home, stop it, shut up. You're going to get your mom in trouble. And he's trying to... But then James sees him. James sees his brother who was dead now alive again. James, by the way, good tradition tells us James was also executed. James became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He was the most authoritative church member in the city of Jerusalem, and eventually we know he was also martyred. Wrote the book of James. If you're going to tell me that Jesus wasn't resurrected, you're going to have to convince me how it is that James Completely changed his tune. And then eventually was killed because he claimed that his brother, who he tried to convince him to shut up and stop saying it, now all of a sudden he's convinced that his brother is God. Has been resurrected. That's what he says. Most last of all, he was seen by James, later by the apostles, and then um, as though I'd been born at the wrong time, I also saw him, is what Paul's saying. So Paul's saying, you know what? Yes, the resurrection is real. Go check it out for yourselves. Okay? But it's the resurrection that changes everything, it gives that hope. If you are here today and you know Jesus, if you are here today and you're not stuck spinning your wheels in a religion, but you are here today and you have a relationship with Jesus, if that's true for you, then you understand okay, that Jesus changes everything, that Jesus brings everything into focus. But you know what? Too many of us, you know what we do? Here's what we do. We go back to that kid at the ice cream bar. The kid at the ice cream bar who stirs and stirs and stirs the ice cream. He had mustard in it. He kept stirring. And this is what he gets. I don't know about you, but that looks disgusting. You know what that is? That's Jesus and. See, and for so many of us, see, the the gospel isn't new to us. I'm imagining that for almost all of you, you have heard the message of Jesus Christ before. I would be willing to bet that there is not a person here who hasn't heard the story of Jesus. Maybe I'm wrong, but I'm betting you, you've heard the story of Jesus. And sometimes we just flat out ignore it we don't care. But a lot of times we say, you know what? Wow, that's pretty awesome. Jesus loves me and, and, and forgives me of my sin, so, so I'll take Jesus and then I'll add him to my life. And Jesus and is exhausting. And some of you that are stuck in religion, some of you that are so burned out on church, some of you that are so frustrated with church, it's because you've never just had Jesus alone. It's always Jesus and. And Jesus and is like this. It's like, yes, I know that everything is new. I know I've been forgiven, and that's great. But I also have to stir really hard, and I have to do all this stuff, and I have to work, and I have to make it right. It's Jesus and. And guys, it will never satisfy you. It will never, ever satisfy you because grace and is exhausting, frustrating, unfulfilling and guys ultimately it's pointless and and that's part of the problem because grace and when that happens we sometimes don't understand what it is that we need to do to respond to the gospel grace and sometimes tells us okay that Jesus did this and if I'm going to make it count for me I better add all of my stuff. If you've ever been at church and you've been told or you've been taught to believe that what Jesus did is great, but you better add to it so that it sticks, I think you've been lied to. And that's a pretty bold statement. I'm going to say it again because I stand behind it. If you've ever been told that what Jesus did for you is great, but that to make it count for you, you have to add to it, then you have been lied to and you are believing a false gospel. There are no specific prayers that you must pray. There are no specific ways that you must pray. There is nothing in this that will teach you that you must be baptized at a certain time or in a certain way so that you can be forgiven. There's nothing in here that will show you that when I take communion, when I take this this Holy Lord's Supper, that somehow that gives me salvation, that that imparts something. None of that is in here. That's all what we call grace and. There's nothing in here, listen... By the way, can I just say, I love it when you come to church. I like it when you come to church. I think it's awesome when you participate in the offering. I think it's great when you read the Bible and when you pray. I think those things are have to for Christians. We'll talk about that a little bit, but if you're counting on those things to make you okay with God, you are going to be sadly mistaken. You are going to be very disappointed on that day because the only thing that will ever make you right with God is Jesus Christ. That is grace alone, and grace alone brings freedom. Well, we continue. That's what it says here. So the same good news that came to you, it's going out all over the world. It's bearing fruit everywhere by changing lives, just as it changed your lives from the day you first heard and understood the truth about God's grace. See, this is the thing about grace alone, is that it's contagious grace alone the fact that god loves you where you are the fact that god meets you where you are changes you from where you are that is contagious listen if you can't get excited about that then i'm afraid you don't have it if you can't get excited about the fact that god loves you so much that he sent jesus to die on the i mean think about that god looked into eternity and he looked at you and you were not pretty All your warts, all your flaws, all your brokenness, all your mistakes, all the crap you put in your ice cream by mistake, God looked into eternity and he said, I need him in my family. God looked into eternity and and for some reason that I can't explain, God said, Matt Hans, that guy has got to be in my family. Family. I will do anything to get that guy in my family. I will send my son to die on the cross to get that guy into my family. I mean, are you kidding me? That is ridiculous love. And the fact that God does that, listen, if I can understand that and then feel ho hum about Jesus, I am missing something. If I can understand that and think that, okay, that's great, but I better add something to it so that it really sticks, I am confused about the gospel. This is grace and, and he says, it's contagious. The same good news that changed you, it's going out everywhere and it's changing everyone by God's grace. Oh, and here's what it does when it changes everything. Uh, Look, it bears fruit. It changes lives. And you're like, there's the catch. I have to do things differently. I knew there was a catch. I knew it. I knew that there was a catch. I knew that I was going to have to change things. Yes, 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 yes. You do have to change things. Absolutely, you have to change things. If you really thought that God was going to send Jesus to die on a cross for your sins so that you could be right with him and that it wouldn't cost you anything, then you're confused. But you have to understand the way that it works. Your good actions, the best that you have to offer, the great stuff that you do, you can do it and you can do it and you can do it and it's never going to be enough to get you to God. God is all the way up here. We are all the way down here. And it, every good thing that I do, every religious Thing that I do, every moral deed that I do, every good behavior that I do, even if it helps me get up a little bit higher, it 's never going to get me to Jesus or it 's never going to get me to God, but Jesus does this, Jesus does this, and so now, because I have direct access to God, I can do all of that with the right heart. See, this is the thing you are supposed to read, you are supposed to pray, you are supposed to get close to God, you are supposed to help your brothers and sisters. you are supposed to pour yourself out. On behalf of other people but not because that's going to make god love you but you do it because god does love you and god has accepted you and god has made a way for you to be okay you have to get the order right otherwise it's exhausting it never works right The gospel is contagious because it has the power to change lives and it moves you from being exhausted and burned out and frustrated into a real relationship where you can do real things, where you can make real changes to your life because God wants you to, because God blesses you, because God gives you the power to do that. You will never be able to do that in a way that will make God like you more. But because God loves you like crazy... When you got Jesus, you can get there. We'll finish up here. It says, so we've not stopped praying for you since we first heard about you. We ask God to give you complete knowledge of his will. Will there just means the way he wants you to live your life. We ask, we, we pray that God will show you every detail of the way he wants you to live your life. And you know what? Here's the deal. They pray that God will give you complete knowledge and that you'll grow in spiritual wisdom and understanding. The way you live will always honor and please the Lord, and your lives will produce every kind of good fruit. All the while, you'll grow as you learn to know God better and better. Here's the deal. When you become a Christian, that's when you have to plug in. That's why it's dangerous. That's why it's dangerous to be an every once in a while church goer. Honestly. Honestly. That's why it's dangerous to be in every once in a while in a church goer. That's why it's dangerous to never really get plugged in to a church. Because here's the thing. The, The question is, as you start to know God better and better, as you know him more and more, you grow in spiritual understanding. You grow in wisdom. You grow in knowing what God's will is for your life. You grow in a reason to get yourself out of bed and get moving every single day. If you are bored with your life, Part of the problem is that you don't know what Jesus has for your life. But none of this works without Jesus first. This is the point that Paul's making in this beginning part of Colossians, is none of this works without Jesus first. This is not a Jesus um, then. This is is a, a Jesus and add things. This is not something else will get you to Jesus. This is a Jesus alone relationship. If you want to be right with God... If you want your life to matter, if you want your eternity to be what you think it should be, if you want to spend it with God in heaven and you want to avoid, right? You want to avoid making the mistakes that other people make. You want your life to change for the better. You want nothing to do with hell. You want everything to be pointed in the right direction. All of it starts with Jesus. All of it starts with Jesus. And it's just simply a matter of choice. I tell you this last thing as we prepare to close. A story some of you maybe know. There was a guy, father, long time ago. He's an artist, amateur, not awesome, but he loved it. He loved painting. He loved collecting artwork, and um, he had the resources to do it. And he spent time with his son, convincing his son to love art the way he did. Convincing his son to to start to give himself over to studying art, to learning art, to loving it. And you know what? They, They had, like I said, they had resources, and so they collected thousands of dollars worth of art. Beautiful artwork. Right? Picasso, Van Gogh, Monet... They went to auctions. They went to shows. They went to dealerships. In fact, the father was so proud of his son because his, his son turned into quite this shrewd negotiator um, and business manager as, as he managed the, the art portfolio. And they had a collection that people would come from miles around to look at and that museums clamored over. It was arguably one of the best collections around. Then the time went. War started. Son enlisted and he went. And it was only a few short weeks into his um, deployment that uh, his son had gone missing in action. And the father waited anxiously for news. He had hope, but with every day it waned more and more. And then finally on Christmas morning, doorbell rang. And he dreaded answering the door But he did, and when he answered the door, there was a young soldier there with a package in hand. And he said, you don't know me, but I knew your son. He died saving my life. They came in, they sat down, they talked. Um, The young man said, you know, your son talked about you all the time. He talked about your love for art, his love for art. And you know what, he saved my life. And while I'm not a great artist by any stretch of the imagination, I dabble and, and I painted this for you. And he opened it and it was a, it was a portrait of the son. Not spectacular, but with enough detail that it was very clear as the father stared into the painting that he was looking at a portrait of his boy. And they talked for a little while longer, and he promised to hang it over the mantle of the fireplace. In fact, he took down a Monet to hang the picture of the son over the fireplace. And then as time went on, he heard more and more stories about some of the heroic things that his son did in that short time that he was there. In fact, he saved four different men's lives before a bullet finally stopped his own heart. And the father just grew to be so proud of the sacrifice of his son, and he cherished the painting and the portrait of his son. And whenever anybody came over, he showed it to them first. Yeah, yeah, I know you want to see the treasure, but look at my son. Check out my son. Then eventually the father died. And, and, and all of the art world clamored for an opportunity to own the father's treasure. And per the will, there was an auction. And everyone gathered together, all the art deals, all the art dealers from everywhere gathered together uh, to participate in the auction so they could get a piece of the treasure. Uh, and they could take it back to their homes or their museums and they could display it proudly and they all wanted a chunk of the treasure. And so they're there and, and, and the auctioneer steps up to the podium and the first item up for bid is the portrait of the sun. hundred dollars. A hundred dollars. Who will give me $100 for the son? And you might think there would be silence, but there actually wasn't silence. There was scoffing. That's not why we came here. That's not what we want. Bring out the good stuff. But the auctioneer simply said, you know what? According to the will of the father, this one is first. Who will give me $100? More scoffing. But there was a neighbor, a man who loved the father, and he loved the son, and he knew them well. He had nothing. So he chimed up, I've got $10. Will you take $10 for him? I knew him. I'd like to have him. $10, going once, twice, sold, banged the gavel. Yes, now on to the good stuff. Except the auctioneer simply put his things away and he closed his briefcase and he said, That brings our auction to a close. What? That's not why we came here. Where's the good stuff? And the auctioneer simply said, It's according to the will of the Father. Whoever takes the son gets the treasure. It's that simple for us. Your life isn't working the way that you want it to work. You're exhausted trying to make it fit. Trying to push things where they should go or pull things where they should go or, or, or square pegs into round holes and all of it and you're exhausted and you're burned out. That's the praise team to come up, prepare to close this. If you're done with that, if that's what you're stuck with, then, then I want to suggest to you that the same deal is on the table for you. Whoever takes the sun, gets the treasure. But listen to me. There is no way there without the sun. First morning, the women go to the tomb, and they want to prepare Jesus' body appropriately for burial, and the stone is rolled away, and he's gone and they're crying, and they see an angel appear, and they drop down to their knees, and they're terrified. It's simply this. The angel says to them, why do you look for him here? Why do you look for the dead among the living? He is not here. Listen to me. The tomb is empty. Resurrection has happened. Death has been defeated, and your life has meaning. It's just waiting for you to take the sun. Everything that was keeping you away from God, your sin, OK, your, your um, huge mistake, your anger, your lashing out, uh, whatever it is, your, your affair, your addiction, whatever it is that you have that's been keeping you away from God, Jesus took care of it on the cross. And he is no longer in the grave. He is among the living. And if you want the treasure, you take the son. It's the way that it works. Would you pray with me? And then we'll sing this last song. Heavenly Father, God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you that whatever I have, Jesus paid it all. Whatever debt I owed, whatever sin I carried, whatever mistakes I've made, Jesus paid it all. Therefore, when I accept and I follow him, when I take the son, my life is changed. It's different. It's not anymore what it used to be, but it's now something grand, something better. God, we thank you for that truth. We thank you for Easter. We thank you that what happened then changes everything now. God, we love and praise you. Amen. Just stand and sing this last song with us. Jesus did everything. There is nothing left for you to do. There's no work left for you to complete. There's no thing that you have to check off your list. There's nothing else that makes it work except simply this. Acknowledgement that Jesus paid it all and all to him I owe. It's that simple. If your life is missing that, then don't miss the opportunity to do it different. Don't miss the opportunity to find real joy and purpose and passion by coming to Jesus. Remember, he who takes the son gets the treasure. If you want to know more about that, come talk to me. Talk to the person that brought you, okay? Have a wonderful Easter. Uh, Thank you for coming, and we'll see you later.